Um, please turn with me to page four of your service sheet. We are working our way through 1 John. And because 1 John's a small book, and just because it's a good thing to do, you'll notice that I've been adding um, an additional reading to the short passage from 1 John every single week. 1 John was written by John, the apostle, and he also wrote a whole gospel. And a lot of the themes that you read in John's gospel were replicated. So you have darkness and light. You have um, the, the necessity of the Spirit's empowering presence in your life to abide in every life of the believer. And as a Christian abides in the Father and in the Godhead, as it were. They're brought into that relationship through Jesus' death and resurrection. And we read some of that on page 4 or in John chapter 14 in, your, in our Bible. So let's um, look at page 4 or John 14. I'll read the first 17 verses and then we'll read from 1 John as well. John writes, John 14 verse 1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And then as we turn over to page 5, if we're in the service sheet or in our Bibles, please turn to 1 John chapter 2. And we'll read the first six verses. 1 John 2 verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Please take up your Bible and service sheet. I'd love you to have that in front of you. We don't just say that, we really mean it. It's important you check what has been said from the Bible. Their anonymity will be guarded, but one of the questions we've asked our children from time to time is, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be? What do you want to do when you grow up? An astronaut. A train driver. I think kind of train drivers have big uh, steering wheels, but they don't. Dan's told me it's more like a fly-by-wire or something like that. But I want to be a train driver. I want to be an astronaut. I want to go to the moon and beyond. Um, no, I want to be a farmer. I want to be a musician. I want to play for Liverpool Football Club. You can see who that one is because they've got a kit. But uh, all these sort of things that when you're a child, you long to dream big, to have big aspirations, to have big hopes and desires. But the trouble is, if you want to be an astronaut, if you want to be the best midwife in the world, not just in St. George's, if you want to be an excellent musician, whatever you want to be, there's always a day of reckoning. There's always a day where a test has to be passed. Uh, there's always a day where if you want to be good at music, where you have to go for an exam and you can see if you can uh, cut the mustard or whatever it is for <laughs> phraseology. There's a test that you've got to take and then you'll know whether you're going to be a great musician. Then you know if NASA like you or not. Then you know if Liverpool will say yes or no. With all these dreams and aspirations, there's always a test, there's always an examination, there's always a grade, there's always a day of reckoning. And in that day, when you pass, then you know that you're in. When you fail, you know that you shouldn't have thought about being an astronaut because you can't wear glasses if you're an astronaut, and so on. There's a standard that needs to be met, but when you pass that test, when you get to that day, then you know. You know that you know. And that's kind of what 1 John is about. In 1 John, John is claiming that it is possible for you to know that you belong to God as a Christian. It's what Christians in a different era have called the doctrine of assurance. How do you know that you know? How can you be consciously aware that you are a Christian? How can you be and have a deep certainty in your spirit that this is not a wishy-washy feeling that comes after you've sung a great song? That this is not just a, 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 an atmosphere that's been whipped up in a Christian meeting. This is historically rooted. This is empirically measurable. And yet, this is an internal reality that you know God and you can go to the bank on it. There is a day of reckoning and you've passed. There is a dream and you know it's a reality. You can know that if you die today, were you to die tonight, were you to be called home if you're a Christian here this morning, you can know that it would be for an eternity of joy with King Jesus in heaven. You can know that. It's not what I'm saying. It's what John says, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 2. You can really know this morning that you're a Christian. You can be assured it's not about how you feel. 
you can know within that you have this reality, this legal standing before the God of the universe. You can know for sure. He says there's a, an internal test and there's three external tests. We're just going to look at one of those today. There's an internal test that you need to pass, that you need to be aware of, and there's three external fruits that will need to be seen. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. We know that we have come to know him. This is not just an external thing. There has to be an internal reality that you know that you're a son and daughter of the king. But the way that's checked, the way that's kind of measured, is that there has to be fruit, there has to be an overflow, an outflow of this internal change in reality. This is what this passage is about, verses 1 to 6. It's a bit of an overlap from last week. It's about an intimacy with God that's, that's knowable, that's real, that there's a fruit that will be seen, and there's a goal that uh, can be achieved. So that's a, an intimacy, a fruit, and a goal. Here's number one, an intimacy. There is an intimacy that is possible for you to know God, you to have assurance of your salvation, and it's far more than just an intellectual understanding. It's more than books on the shelf. You can know God internally, intimately, intimately and personally. Coming out of 1 John for a bit, I think one of the most frightening verses in the Bible is in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, we read Jesus say, On the last day, many will come to me, and they will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do marvelous deeds in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons and heal people in your name? Jesus said these words to busy people, people who went to church, people who knew their Bible, people who knew the right doctrine, people that had a full record chart for Sunday school attendance. And he says, there is an understanding of me. You can know me, but you don't really know me personally and intimately. It's just an intellectual ascent of who I am, of the th parts of my character, of teachings from the scriptures. You, could, you think you know me, but you don't. You just know about me. And Jesus in 1 John is getting at this point of saying, there is another level of knowing God that is not just intellectual ascent. Christianity is a legal standing. It says that in verse 1 and verse 2. But there's an understanding beyond intellectual and even beyond legal. Do you remember that from last week, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2? In verse 1 it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Christianity is a legal standing with God. We are justified because of verse 2. Jesus Christ dying for the sins of the world. He has paid our price. He is the propitiation. He has offered atonement once and for all. Sounds like the three musketeers. But once and for all, Jesus has paid in full. And because of that, we have a legal standing. Verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father. No guilt in life, no fear in death. We've been united to Jesus so that everything, get this, everything that is true of Jesus is now true of you and me. That's the gospel right there. It says we are as free from the guilt of sin as if we died on the cross ourselves. But Jesus died in our place. That's the wonderful reality that we can know God personally. So it is legal, but it's more than that. It's more than a legal standing. It's intimacy. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, it'd be really interesting if it was just written up as a legal understanding between Adam and Eve. 
Remember what happened? Um, Adam and Eve, they met in the registry office, which was Eden. And they signed a contract one to another, and that was it. And then uh, nine months later or so, she conceived, and there was a son. There was a daughter. That's not how it was at all. It says Adam and Eve knew each other. It's a sexual word. It's an intimate word. Our relationship with God is not sexual. Don't hear me wrong, but it is intimate. And one John is saying, you can know God personally. You can know him intimately. This is not just intellectual knowledge. This is not just legal truth. This is intimacy. You can know that you know God by knowing him personally, internally. I had lunch this week with a man who I've got a very professional relationship with. I know what he does, I know what he reads. I thought I knew who he was. But this week as we shared a meal together, something happened. He started to share. He started to share beyond the professional to the personal. He started to tell me stuff about his family, stuff about his past, stuff about things he struggles with. There was a deeper connection from me to him and him to me. So I started to share at that level too, because that's how men work. There is a relationship with God that is beyond legal, that is beyond intellectual, that we can know God personally and intimately because of his son. So that when the Bible is read, it's not professional, it's personal. It's not just study, it's a relationship that's growing. You can read the Bible and it's just ink upon a page. You can pray that God by his spirit would open up this book, this living word, and then these words turn from ink upon a page to life-giving words. And these words are not just words, these are words for me. This is not just timeless truth. This is truth for me. These words are a light and a lamp for my feet. They guide me because they show me who Jesus is. They show me what he has done. And they guide me towards real fellowship with him. Not just legal, not just intellectual, it's personal knowledge. And one John is saying, you have to have this, this internal reality, as one of the signs that you know that you know that you're a Christian. You have to have this so that you can be assured of your salvation. Sometimes it's really gentle. It's a still, small voice. Sometimes it can be heavy. Sometimes it can be epic and large. Sometimes there is a warming of your heart. Sometimes it's as if heaven's windows have been opened and glories into your heart and soul. But you have to have this internal reality to know that you are a Christian. The Bible talks about this in, all over the place, but just one. When you get a sense of God's glory and goodness, Hebrews 11:2 tells us about the heroes of faith, the heroes of old. So you've got people like Abraham and Moses. You've got Enoch and David. You've got Abel. And it says, God gave this testimony to each one of them that they pleased him. Here are men, there are women in that chapter as well, who are walking in the light, who are walking as Jesus walked. We're going to think about that in a minute. And they have an internal testimony. They have heaven's windows, as it were, open, like Stephen did last week in Acts 7 and 8. And they see Jesus interceding for him. Sometimes you have that experience in your own heart to a greater or lesser degree. And you need that to know that you are God and that God is yours. It's intimacy that's possible. That's what happens when you walk in the light, when you walk obediently. And walking in obedience is the fruit that we need to see. So there's intimacy with God. It's an internal reality that God knows you and that you know him. 
But then secondarily, look at the fruit. I said there are three uh, fruits that you would see. It's not just this internal sense of feeling. There has to be an external outflowing of this truth of God in your life. Here are three, verse 4 to 6. It shows our behavior will change. That's an external thing. Verses 7 to 11 shows that our relationships will change with people. Verse 18 says, actually, our doctrine will change, what we believe. Those are three external signs. We just need to look at one, and that's our behavior. Let's think about the fruit of this internal change, verses 4 to 6. Look at this. The man who says, I know him, verse 4 to 6, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Here's the test. Here's the external reality. It's not enough to say that I know God. Um, I've passed the test. It has to be seen in a change in your behavior. It has to be seen on the outside. You're less crabby than you were last year. You're more understanding than you were last year. You're more patient than you were five years ago. You're more generous than you were ten years ago. There has to be a change in your behavior. Look at verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Bit by bit, day by day, month by month, you will be changing as the Spirit of God is at work in your life, convicting you of your sin, taking the truth of God and putting it into your mind. He will be at work to change you, to make you more like his son, bit by bit. It says here again and again, this is a call to obedience. Really unfashionable word. But look at the three references here. Verse 3, we are called to have a spirit of obedience. Verse 3, if you obey his commands. Verse 5, if you obey his word. Verse 6, if you walk as Jesus walked. Three ways of saying the same thing. This is a call for external obedience. It's not enough for you just to say, I'm a Christian, and you're the same person as you were five years, ten years, three years, one year ago. There has to be change as God conforms you to the likeness of his Son. Three ways of saying the Bible, being obedient to the Bible, to be being obedient to the Word of God. Now, I was thinking this week, I was at a pastor's conference on Tuesday. It was excellent. We're up in London with other FIC pastors from inside the M25. And we're thinking about, spoiler alert for a series coming to you probably next year, the issue of identity. It's a really big issue in the culture over the last few years about identity, especially sexual identity. Our culture, one of the things we're talking about, hates the idea of obedience and discipline. There's no external authority. It's me, myself, and I. And who are you to say what I think is wrong? So I want us to think about, if we are called to obey, what does that mean? Obedience, I think, is the same as discipline. Let me give you a few examples. Obedience is the same as discipline, and obedience is the willingness, here's the key sentence, to have our will crossed. Obedience is to have our will crossed, the willingness for that to happen. So think food. This has never happened to me. Imagine you're there at a, a £7 for all-you-can-eat buffet. So there's the Chinese, there's uh, the pasta, there's, you can see it's carbs galore, there's Indian, there's the all-day fry-up, and then there's that horrible thing that no one goes near, the salad bar. You know that you want to, if you're me, you want to enjoy a full English breakfast with a bargee, because it's the best of both worlds, a bit of naan on the side, with a spring roll, and then at least a gallon of Coke, drinking Coke. Um, you know that you want to enjoy that. You know. 
But the thing is, I'm trying to watch my figure. Don't snigger. I'm trying to watch my figure, so I know that that would not be good for me. So I go to that horrible location and just have one barge, and I go to that foreign environment where there is salad, those green foreign objects that look horrible, that can only be sanctified by fried bacon, and then a salad is a good thing. Obedience is the willingness to have your will crossed. I know that I want to eat and indulge and enjoy, that's before we get to the puddings, all those great foods from around the world. But I know that's not good for me. So I will cross my will and I will go and just go, just for a little bit and have a tiny bit of broccoli. I'll go and have a tomato. I'll go and have something and then a bit of bacon on top. But if obedience is the, is the, uh, the attitude of the willingness of having your will crossed, I want to eat all the bad stuff, but I will eat the good stuff. Think physical uh, well-being. You know that you're on the 705 train. But if you get up an hour earlier, away from your slumber, away from the enjoyment of sleep, you know that you can do some press-ups, some burpees, some star jumps. You know you can do a few curls and a few chin-ups. You might go for a run or at least a fast walk with your arms. You know that your will wants you to stay horizontal in your bed. But if you're going to obey what your physical trainer says, you know that you're going to get up an hour earlier and go and do the gym or go for a run or go for a walk. So obedience is the willingness for you to have your will crossed. You want that food. You want that barge. You want that second helping, but you won't. You want sleep. You want slumber because it's so comfy and warm and it's cold outside. But you know you'll get up an hour earlier because you will have your will crossed to go and run and walk and sprint and whatever it may be. Food, physical uh, well-being. But the problem is in this modern secular world, when you get to the issue of morality, whether it's food or whether it's physical well-being, your will is the highest standard. I want to change my body shape. I want to eat healthily. I want to get fitter. And so I will cross my will of comfort, whether it's eating pasta or staying in bed, and I will go to that green salad bar or I'll go to the gym. But when it comes to morality, modern people have a big problem, I think. It's one thing to have uh, physical discipline, but it's quite another to have moral discipline. It's quite another to have moral discipline. Because in the modern world and in the moral realm, there is no higher standard, as I mentioned earlier. I can do what I want, and you can't challenge me. Only I can decide what's right and wrong for me. You have to find out what you want to do. You have to find out what right and wrong is for you. And in that case, there's no higher plane to have a moral discipline, not physical or food. There's no plane above yourself that you can refer to. There's no one to cross your will. See that? There's no one to cross your will in the modern world. There's no one to tell you what's right and what's wrong. And here's John, and here's the Bible as a whole, saying, Obedience to God is the willingness to have your will crossed, not by you. This is not food, this is not health. Obedience to God, one of the signs that you've become a Christian. How do you know that you know? Where's the assurance? It's internal, but there's also the fruit of obedience, and it's here. And this is what a conversation can go like. If you're a Christian, here is a sign that you are a Christian. Here's a fruit. God, this feels like it's right for me to do. This relationship feels good. But you say it's wrong. I will let you cross my will. I don't see any reason why this is wrong. I don't feel it's wrong. I don't know it's wrong. But because you say it's wrong, it must be. Therefore, God, you can cross my will. You can set the agenda for my life. 
You have spoken, I will listen to your voice. I will not stand in authority over the Bible. I will be underneath the authority of the Bible. God, I want to listen to your voice. I want to do what you say. I want to see the smile on your face. So my comfort will go to one side. My priorities will be pushed to one side. I want to live under your lordship. I want to know what you want me to do. Father, you can cross my will. There's no better example of this, I think, than in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, you've got Abraham and you've got Isaac going up the hill. Isaac, the son of promise. Isaac, the son that he's always wanted. Isaac, his favorite son. And God says from the heavens, take your son. I have two sons. Take your only son. Well, okay, take the one whom you love. Oh, no, not Isaac. Yep, take him. And take him to the mountain that I will show you and sacrifice him there. God, are you kidding me? He's my son in later life. He's the son of promise. Yeah, take him. And there are those famous sentences in the Genesis 22 when God says, as Abraham's about to kill his son, to sacrifice him, now I know that you love me. Now I know, because you did not hold on to what was most precious to you. It's a great example of faith and obedience, of Abraham having his will crossed by God. Friends, one of the signs that you're a Christian is that you're willing to have your will crossed by God. You'd rather bow to his authority and do his will than your own. And so let me challenge you as I've challenged myself this week. If you're feeling spiritually dry, if you're barren, if God feels far away, look through your life with this tool, with this diagnostic tool, and ask yourself this question. Is there an area in your life, is there an action, is there a habit, is there a practice that you know is running against your conscience? that you know is wrong, but you want to keep two-timing God. You want to keep one foot in the world and one foot in the Bible, so to speak. Is there an area of your life, a practice or a habit, where you are not willing for God to cross your will? You're not doing his will, you're doing yours. Think about that, meditate on that. Because here's the truth from 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3 and following. The more we grow in obedience to God's word, the more we obey it, the more we open the door, as it were, for his love to accomplish the purpose he has for it in our lives, which is to make us more mature, verse 5, more like his son and more in line with his purposes. This is the fruit of an internal relationship with God. But quickly, onto the goal. We thought about intimacy, we thought about fruit, external change, obedience to God. God and God alone is to cross your will. You don't set the agenda, the course for your ship, God does. But what's the goal? What's the point? What's the purpose? Verse 5. The reason for obedience to God is a relationship. The reason for obedience to God is a relationship. Look at verse 5. If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. Obedience is not an end in itself. Obedience is a means to an end. Really important to see the goal of obedience, the purpose of obedience. The reason we obey God is intimacy with him, not to win his approval. I went to Bible college, let me prove it to you. Three years. Do you know what's before Exodus 20? Exodus 19. There we go. That's Bible college for you. Here's the reason I want to point that out to you. It's so obvious. Because if you just grasp Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, which you know is the Ten Commandments, if you think, aha, okay, you're saying obedience is the key to a relationship, therefore I'm going to obey. 
Friends, under religion, obedience is about salvation. You obey to save yourself. That's religion. But in the gospel, in Christianity, you obey for affection, for intimacy, not for salvation. And the reason I say to you, just flippantly, that before Exodus 20 is Exodus 19, is because if you just take Exodus 20, if you just think, I'm going to go home and I'm going to roll up my socks and I'm going to be determined and pray more and I'm going to obey God more, you will fail. It will crush you. It will smash you. But to understand Exodus 20, you've got to understand Exodus 19. That before the law is given, the people are already rescued. Before God speaks a word of command in saying, this is how you are to live, this is how you will obey me, he's already saved them, he's already rescued them, he's already approved of them, he's already set his affection on them, he's already loved them. So you don't obey God to save yourself, you're already rescued. You obey God for intimacy. You obey God for intimacy. Exodus 19 says this, You yourselves have seen what I did, how I carried you on eel's wings, and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my commandment, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. God does not say, if you obey me, I'll bring you out. Here's the list, and then I'll rescue you. He says, I've already rescued you, therefore obey me. I've already saved you, therefore live a life of intimacy with me. I want you to know me. I've saved you. Here are the Lord's because I want you to know me intimately and personally and closely. We're not given the law to save us. The law is given for intimacy, to turn us into someone like him. It's to give us a relationship personally, intimately with him. Moses didn't come to say, hey, everybody, this is how you're to save yourself. This is how, if you do this, God is going to take you out of here. If you read Exodus and Deuteronomy very carefully, you see that people in the Old Testament are saved just like you and me. They're saved by faith in a one who was to come, King Jesus. We look back, they look forward. And obedience brings them into a perfect, or perfects them into a relationship with God. It matures them, like verse 5, that God's love is made complete as people, men and women, boys and girls, obey Jesus, obey his teaching. And this is how we know we can know him by obeying him, by listening to his voice and doing what he says. No disconnect. Now let's get concrete. Imagine I had in my hand my red pen knife that I left at home. I wanted to show it to you. I've had it for about 20 years. I love it. It's mine. But I have no intimate relationship, believe it or not, with that pen knife. Someone gave it to me. I like it. But it makes no demands on me. It's just a thing. It's a thing that's handy. It's the thing that I do stuff with. It's the thing that's precious to me because of who gave it to me. But it makes no demands on me. But getting concrete, when you get into a relationship with somebody else, the difference between a thing and a person is that people increasingly make demands on you. The closer you get to someone, the more intimate you get in a relationship, the more you love someone, the less control you have over your life. I can be in complete control of my Swiss Army knife. It's precious to me. But it's nothing like the relationship I have with my wife. She tells me what to wear. She tells me what to eat. She tells me all these things. No, I kid you not. But more seriously, friends, the closer you get into a relationship with someone, the more demands they can make on you. Not because they're trying to conform you to someone else, but because they love you. A penknife is just a thing. But the relationship, the closer you get, you let them cross your will. 
You say, I want this, but I want to please you, and so I will change. You show me that there's broccoli in my teeth. I could ignore that, but because I love you, I'm going to get it out. Joe, you were right that I spoke unkindly then. I could stand on my rights. I could dig my heels on because I am proud to the core. But you are right, and I will let you cross my will because I want to get close to you. I snapped at you a few weeks ago. I'm really sorry. I've fested on that. I've hurt you. I've wounded you. But I want to restore intimacy, so I'm sorry. Friends, all of those principles you can bring to your relationship with the king of the universe. We can get further and further apart from the God who has saved us and rescued us because we don't say sorry, we don't repent. That's what the Bible says. But the closer you get to God, the more demands he can make on your will. The closer you get to God in the personal relationship, the more he can cross you, the more demands he can make on you. That's the reason why God can say, now that I've saved you, I want you to love me. I want a relationship. I want to be intimate with you. Here's my will, Exodus 20. I want a relationship with you. Friends, the more you grow in your relationship with God, the more and more vulnerable you become. The more and more vulnerable you become, the less and less control you have over your life. We've been married for 18 years now, I think. Looking, I think it's 18 years. The closer and closer we get, the more vulnerable I get. I've got nothing to prove anymore. Joe knows my failings. I can be vulnerable to her. I can be honest to her. But also, isn't that to be true of our relationship with the king of the universe? The more and more you know God, the more and more vulnerable you get. The more and more you have to obey his will, the more and more you have your will crossed by his will and priorities. You think, oh, that's too costly. I couldn't do that. Friends, the greatest Christian on the face of the earth will never, ever be as vulnerable as God who made himself vulnerable to us. None of us will ever make ourselves as vulnerable to God as he made himself to us when he became mortal, when he came from heaven to earth, when he died on the cross, when he laid aside his majesty. This is the test of how you can know that you know God. It's an intimate relationship with the king. There's fruit of behavioral change. Relationships change. What you believe change. You get rewired from the inside out. And you make yourself vulnerable to the king. And you say, have your way with me. I don't want to hold anything back. I want this love to be complete in me. That's why I want, you, that's why I want to obey you. Look at verse 5. Whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Friends, this is a hard word because it's about obedience. It's about coming under the authority of God. And yet it's a simple word because it says, if you are saying that you're a Christian, you should be obedient to the will of the one who made you and who knows you. In every other religion in the world, you obey the gods because you're trying to save yourself. But in the gospel, you obey the king of the universe for intimacy and closeness. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather around the table, we see physical signs of bread and of wine that shows how vulnerable the maker of the universe came and became for us. So that we can stand in a legal relationship, we are guiltless because Jesus Christ was made guilty. We can stand before you, Father, innocent because Jesus Christ was treated as a criminal 
Father, please help us to understand the simplicity and the difficulty of coming under your authority and will, that we can know you, that we are yours, because of the testimony of the Spirit in our hearts. These are words that are ours and for us, but also help us increasingly to see the Spirit's work in our life as we become more obedient and more under your authority, have a greater willingness to have our priorities and our will crossed because we want to say, your will be done in our lives. Please give us a sensitivity of spirit to know where there is something in our hearts and lives that we need to confess again to you, to give over to you and share with a friend so that there will be nothing hindering a closeness of our walk with you. Oh, for a closer walk with you, we pray. Amen.